I should say I'm Evan Smith. I'm the Editor-in-Chief and CEO of the Tribune. It's been a great day here on the UT Austin campus. Thank you all so much. This is, uh, this is the biggest festival we've put on in four years with the most speakers, the most programs, and the most attendees. Some 3,000 people registered for the festival this year. Thank God there are 3,000 people who think, as we all do, nerds, wonks. In here it matters, right? We all care about this stuff. It's, it's a club you want to be in, and, uh, and we appreciate you all coming for that. Um, this would not happen without the hard work of our staff, and let me just say a word on behalf of that. The Texas Tribune folks who put this event on every year deserve enormous credit, along with the UT Austin and South by Southwest and Texas Natural Gas Now folks who sponsor this festival. We very rarely thank appropriately the Tribune folks. Will you please thank Tanya Erlock and the Tribune Festival staff for their hard work. Thank you. Please be sure to join us outside for a party outside on the courtyard there at the, uh, at the ATT Center where we are uh, once this is concluded. Turn your phones to silent if you're tweeting and off completely. If you're not, if you're tweeting, please use the hashtag TribuneFest. I am at Evan A. Smith. Senator Davis is at Wendy Davis, Texas, if you're inclined to tweet. Otherwise, please turn your phones completely off. Now, I am pleased to introduce our final keynote session of the day. A conversation with State Senator Wendy Davis of Fort Worth, the Democratic nominee for Texas governor in 2014. Senator Davis was first elected to represent District 10 in 2008, was re-elected in 2012, on both occasions winning in a majority Republican district. In the 83rd legislative session, she served as vice chair of the Open Government Committee and as a member of the Transportation, Economic Development, and Veterans Affairs and military installation committees. Born in Rhode Island, but raised from age 11 in Fort Worth, Senator Davis has an undergraduate degree from Texas Christian University and a law degree from Harvard. She previously served for nearly nine years on the Fort Worth City Council. A note to the audience here and on the live stream. Senator Davis's Republican opponent, Greg Abbott, was informally invited to participate in this festival back in January and received a formal invitation just after the March primary. We'd hope to have the two candidates on stage at some point. They could pick when. In conversation about the future of Texas. As an alternative, General Abbott was afforded the same opportunity to sit for an extended solo interview. He declined. We are extremely grateful that she did not. Please join me in welcoming Senator Wendy Davis. I appreciate you being here. Very hard to be here, and I appreciate that. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, everyone. Hey there. Hello, Senator. Hello, Evan. It feels like just yesterday that we were on this stage together. It does, it and does. there's been a lot of ground covered between then and now, though. There has, and I want to talk about that, but I want to ask you first about last night. People said it was a do-or-die debate. Did you do or did you die? <laughs> I think I did. Um, I hope people will say that I did. Okay. What about, it, what about it went as you intended, and what about it didn't? I think we all watched it, and of course, it takes a little while to process this yeah. stuff, but give us your... Give us your take on it. Give us your reviews of yourself. You know, I had an opportunity to show the stark contrast between yeah. these two people who are asking to serve Texas as its next governor. And I think I was able to demonstrate what I've been talking about as part of this campaign, that I will be a governor who will fight every single day yeah. for all of the people of this state, and that I have a record that demonstrates that that's who I am and what I've done. Yeah. One of the things I said last night, it was a, a quote from a, a friend's grandmother, that when people show you who they are, you should believe them. And I believe I've shown people who I am, but I also believe that Greg Abbott has shown people who he is, a person who's looking out for other insiders at the expense of hardworking Texans. And I feel like last night gave an opportunity to be able to show that. Well, I want to come back to the case against General Abbott shortly and the case sure. for you. I'm going to ask you to make both. But I want to go back to the year uh, ago on this stage. Mm -hmm. You sat with me at the Tribune Festival three months after the filibuster, almost to the day, mm -hmm. and three days before you declared for governor. This is what you said. When you think about doing something this big and it may seem improbable, you want to make sure you're not doing something foolhardy. Mm -hmm. Knowing what you know now... <laughs> Uh, I wonder if you have any regrets about the way it's gone. Judging the race today, looking back over your shoulders, has it gone the way you want it? 
I'm very pleased with the way the race has gone. And, you know, when we started, Evan, the thing that made it so overwhelming was that there really hadn't been a statewide infrastructure built for a Democratic candidate in Texas in a long time. Going back probably to Ann Richards. That's correct. Right. And so there was a little bit of that, you know, the, the old saying about building the plane while it's taking off. Right. Um, and, you know, we, we definitely had an incredible amount of work on our hands to try to put together the team and the program that we knew would take us over the finish line. But from the very beginning, we knew that there was a path to win this race. And as I said to you last year, foolhardy is doing something that you believe is probably impossible. And I knew from looking at the numbers in this race, from testing how Texans were feeling about things, and also understanding my own capacities and the capacities of my team, I knew that I could look donors in the eye and tell them that I could win this race if they would invest in me. I knew I could look voters in the eye and volunteers in the eye and tell them I could win this race if they would invest their time knocking on doors and making phone calls for me. And I've been overwhelmed at the response that we've received in all of those regards, particularly the volunteer side. Yep. It's the piece that I feel most excited about and most proud of, that we have built an infrastructure of people who, for the first time in a long time, believe that their voices really can matter at a ballot box in a gubernatorial race in Texas. And they're engaged around that belief, and they are actively working, talking to people around this state in a way that we've, quite frankly, never seen before. And part of that is that we've got now the the technology to allow conversations to progress in a whole new way. Yeah. It's a little bit different than the Ann Richards days when they drove around the car with the index cards, right. you know, of all the Democratic but, leaders. But, but of course, Senator, as you know, the technology changes, I will grant you, and the fact that it's a new and modern era of campaigning, but it is still the case that you win if you get more votes and you lose if you get fewer. That's and, exactly right. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering if the optimism in, and, uh, that you talked about a year ago, we think mm -hmm. we could win this, is still the case as you sit here barely 45 days from the election. The polls that are out are admittedly polls put out by people who wish to see a certain outcome in, in almost every case, but they show you not just down, but significantly down. Your campaign had a poll, uh, I guess you handed a poll to, from an, in, an internal poll to one news organization that shows you down by single digits. Mm -hmm. um, I want to understand your perspective on, on where you think you are relative to the finish line. Do you, you sure. think you can still win this is it that you have him where you want him, that in the last 45 days you're going to close? Or are we in the press just dumb about what's really going on here? <laughs> I don't think the press is dumb. I won't say that on this stage, Evan. Um, but <laughs> It's okay. I can take it. It's fine. But, I mean, you, know, you understand that the perspective of the press on of this course. has largely been to look at the math and go math sure. beats path. You know what? Right? That was the same approach and the same response that I received from the press when I ran in 2008. Against Senator Brimer, right? Senator Brimer, the seat that he was sitting in, a seat that was drawn for a Republican. Yeah. The numbers actually in our internal polling at this same time in that race uh, in 2008 Right. were significantly wider than they are right now. I trust our numbers, I trust our message, and most importantly, I trust the people of this state. Yeah. And I can tell you that it's, it's hard to quantify it, it's hard to communicate it yes. if you haven't been out there on the campaign trail every day seeing what I see. But what I see is an engagement of voters that I've never seen in a gubernatorial race before. And I trust that those votes are going to come out and they're going to exercise their voices yeah. and say that they want to see someone in the Texas Capitol who's going to represent them on the things they care about. So it's not going to take something like Greg Abbott not shaking your hand. It's not going to take a precipitating event I, I don't to cause this so. to happen. It's simply going to be wait and see and watch. Joe Biden is right. This race is not over. <laughs> That's right. That's it. Let, let's make the case for you, and then let's have you make the case against him. Because every race, sure. like a tennis match, you can win by winning or you can win by not losing or forcing the other guy to lose. So let's talk about how you win by winning. And that's on issues, theoretically. Uh, you've put out a lot of proposals on the big issues that are going to affect the state over the next four years, and I want to ask you about some of those. 
Education, people forget, we talked about this last year, before there was this filibuster, there was that filibuster. That's right. Back in 2011, you were concerned about the size and the, ma- and the, and the impact of the education cuts. Mm-hmm. You want more money for schools. You think yeah. that more money still needs to go in. No question about it. You know, we, we are shortchanging our children and selling out their future yep. if we don't invest more in our public schools, plain and simple. This is regardless of whether Judge Dietz's decision holds that, uh, that the state is, is out Absolutely. of compliance with the Constitution. So how much would it take for you to be adequate, uh, adequately satisfied? So if you could now wave a wand over the next session and say, here's the amount of money that if I were governor, I'd like to see the legislature put into public ed. Quantify it for me. It's quantifiable in terms of the things that we need to begin to achieve as a state, none of which will occur overnight. We have to invest. We must invest in full-day pre-K for every child. And, of course, the Steve Murdoch demographic studies that have looked at where we are as a state. We are the number one state that has the highest number of adults without a high school diploma right now, 18%. And his predictions, which I believe are are quite valid, and obviously he's not coming at it from a partisan perspective, his predictions are that by 2040, 30% of our adults will not have a high school diploma. He talks about the buying power decline that happens as a consequence of that and what happens to the future of this state. And his most central recommendation after looking at all of this data is that the most important investment we can make is early childhood education for every single child in this state in a full day format. What's it going to cost? To do that, um, you know, somewhere in the $700 million range, if we were to do it for every four-year-old and to lay it out as I've proposed it, which is in a way that uh, creates a sliding scale for children who are on free and reduced lunch, of course, no cost at all. And as incomes are higher, then there's some supplemental costs that parents would pay. But I think the more important question, Evan, is what does it cost if we don't Right, there's a cost to inaction. No no question about it. And as a senator, I have to tell you, coming from a city council background, when we budgeted, we looked at cost, We looked at what the bottom line to our yearly budget would be, but we also looked at what the long-term impact of that investment would be. And we don't do that as a state. We do our biennial budgets. The LBB tells us what the cost is. But LBB is not required as part of that to tell us what the ultimate cost savings is down the road and what the net cost to the state will be if we do not act in this way. So, so, Senator, the question always in a case like this is, where's the money going to come from? Theoretically, one could say, well, the state's having great economic times, in large part fueled by the oil and gas sure. industry. Money's pouring into the rainy day fund. We'll have more money this session than we had last session and more money certainly than we did two sessions ago. But these dollars are in competition with other, you know, for other priorities. It's not public ed. As I said to Senator Vandepeet today, it's not public ed versus not public ed. It's public ed versus transportation, public ed versus water, public ed versus health care. Do you put it at the absolute top? And put it at the absolute top because right. the future of this state is dependent on it. Yeah. If, if we want to create a 21st century future economy in the state of Texas, we have to do it by investing and making sure that we have the workforce who can fill the jobs of yeah. tomorrow. And it's not important just because it matters to the individual lives of each of these young people who deserve us investing and making sure that they can become a part of the promise of Texas, that where they start won't determine how far they can go. It matters because if we don't invest in them, it will hurt our state economy going forward in the future. This is about the future. This race is about the future of Texas and whether we're going to make the investments needed in order to create a successful future. We're sitting, Senator, on a college campus, and so I have to ask you about higher ed, which honestly has gotten less attention than public ed from a funding standpoint over the last couple of years. And really, over the last three and a half years, you would think that the only issue at play in higher ed is the governance of the University of Texas system. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about different aspects of higher ed policy, investment in higher ed, the importance of transforming our public universities from yes. pretty good to excellent. Yeah. But of course, that has a cost associated with it, uh, with it. well. You talk about fully funding grants, you talk about excellence in your higher ed plan, but again, that's got a price tag on it. Right. So what's it gonna take from a quantifiable standpoint? What's it gonna take for us to invest in higher ed and get us to where we need to be? Well, I think, first of all, you know, when the state deregulated tuitions in 2003 
And they did that to move off of their ledger sheet um, costs for higher ed that they no longer wanted to, right. to have on the state's balance sheet. As a consequence of that, you know our tuitions have doubled or more than doubled at right. some of our universities, while at the same time we're seeing a decline in the financial aid. The Texas Grants Program is not fully funded. There is far more need than yeah. there are funds. And unfortunately, even for the students who are, who are receiving those grants, they aren't receiving enough to close the gap. Right. Because in order to provide more students with the ability to get that aid, uh, the legislature made a decision to thin down the amount that each student could, could, could get. Right. And, you know, it's another one of those cost-benefit analyses that we have to look at. If we want to make sure that we have the workforce for the jobs of tomorrow, we've got to make sure that we're investing in our kids. And I've had a couple of, I think, good ideas about how we do that and make it more affordable. Part of the plan that I laid out for higher ed is a, a joinder with public ed. It's to make a, a goal to increase the number of early college high schools that we have in our state. Yep. In the Rio Grande Valley, that is working tremendously well. And they've been very smart about it. They've sought grants to help fund that. And they've yep. created these very important partnerships. I can't tell you how many young people I've met there who are graduating from high school and they already have their first two years of college under their belt. Or they've graduated with a very highly skilled career or technical degree that is equipping them immediately to go into the workforce. Right. And if we're thinking about workforce development, and we've got industry around this state begging yeah. us to think about it, those are the ways that we can do it and do it effectively and efficiently. Senator, uh, Senator Van Depute has a proposal in her higher ed plan to take $2 billion out of the rainy day fund as a one-time uh, expense to fund community college for anybody who wants it. I called it a subsidy. She calls it an investment. Either way, you're talking mm -hmm. about taking $2 billion out of the rainy day fund so anybody who wants to go to community college can mm -hmm. go. Do you support that plan? You know, I respect that she is coming forward with some ideas about how we're going to do that. And but do I you support it? I, I don't feel like I understand enough about her particular plan, yeah. but I think that approach is a very good approach, that community college, yeah. which is how I got to where I am today, right. and I think a lot of people understand that, that I was a struggling single mom right. when community college put my foot on the path to be sitting on this stage where right. I am. And you won't find a bigger supporter of community college yep. than me because I understand that it creates an access and an avenue to a greater education if students choose to go beyond an associate degree. So giving people the opportunity to have that door open to them is right. very important. I think she modeled her, her approach, her idea, after something that's being done in Tennessee. And I think it's very admirable. And I would love to see the legislature work with a lieutenant governor, Leticia Vandepute, to advance to that, that idea. Right. Absolutely. Let me ask about another aspect of higher ed that will feed into immigration, and that's in-state tuition. This, uh, the law in Texas has been going back more than 10 years that we have in-state tuition mm -hmm. for the children of undocumented persons. There's a huge movement afoot to overturn that uh, yeah. law. Uh, Senator Patrick, who was on the stage this morning, should he win the lieutenant governor's office, has said he's certainly for it. I can whip the votes in the Senate and say with some reliability, it's the votes are there probably, at least in the Senate, to overturn in-state. Uh, if you're Governor Davis and that bill shows up on your desk, do you veto it? I veto it in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. You think in-state tuition should still be the law of the state of Texas? I do. Yeah. I absolutely do. And you know, when it passed, I think it was in 2001, One. Yes. there were only four votes against it. It's remarkable to me that we've shifted our thinking so dramatically in such a short period of time. Making an investment in these young people who will contribute to our economy rather than assuring that they won't have an opportunity to succeed in this economy yep. makes no sense. It doesn't make sense for them, but it doesn't make sense for us as a state. And I have to tell you that as part of this campaign, I have met some of the most remarkable young people who are dreamers. The, the first story uh, that really struck me from a dreamer was a young woman that I met in Harlingen at Texas State Technical College. Yep. She moved to Texas when she was, I think she said eighth grade, maybe she said fifth grade, somewhere in the middle school era. And she spoke no English. 
She had a teacher in ninth grade who saw how bright she was and how much potential she had, and she challenged her to graduate in the top 10% of her high school. And she did graduate in the top 10% of her high school. And now she wants to be a teacher because this teacher inspired her Her. so much. Why in the world would we not want this young woman who is so intelligent, so compassionate, uh, so wonderful to be an asset in our teaching community? It just doesn't make sense. But of course, Senator, you know this is less an issue of higher ed than immigration. And immigration is spiked up, understandably, as a big issue in this campaign in all the statewide campaigns, in fact, in part because at the federal level, we've not been able to accomplish anything approaching comprehensive immigration reform. And the president just decided to kick that, uh, the thought of some executive action on on, on immigration reform past the election. Is, is, Is the president wrong to do that? Do you believe that Washington is ultimately making more of an issue of this in Texas by failing to act? They need to act. There's no question they need to so act. So why aren't they? Have you told the president that? I have not had a conversation. I didn't pick up the phone and call him Hello. and say, gee, right. you know, I think you ought to listen to my ideas on yeah. this. But no, they've, they've failed to act. And as a consequence of that, we, we see the ripple impact in Texas in a number of ways, not just on this particular yeah. issue of whether, you know, students should get in-state tuition who have been brought here through no fault of their own, but on a much broader scale, too. Some of the things that we're dealing with on the border right now right. and making sure that we're focusing our resources on the real problems of illegal immigration, drug trafficking, human trafficking, and not thinking about undocumented people living in our state yep. who are willing to work hard, who are willing to pass a background check, willing to learn English and want to be part of our economy. That was George Bush's plan, President uh, right. George W. Bush's plan, and I agreed with it. And, you know, he wasn't able to get it through his Republican. But, d- but doesn't Congress, that just show you how hard it is, and especially the politics of today, more complicated and more polarized even than they were back in 2006? It's a hard thing to, be, to, to get through this Congress. It's terribly hard, right. but there's no excuse for it. So, what can, you, no do? Well, so what can you do here? You know, Senator Patrick again was here this morning, mm-hmm. and he, the federal government won't act, we will. And so he's mm-hmm. talking about sanctuary cities legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as, one, as, as one thing, mm-hmm. overturning in-state tuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you do? So he would do that sort of stuff to address mm-hmm. the problem. What specifically would you do? Well, first of all, that bill, that Arizona-style immigration bill yeah. that Senator Patrick is talking about, is one that I fought actively against as a member of the Texas Senate. And if that bill lands on my desk as governor, I will veto it. We saw the economic impact that that bill had in Arizona, and it would be foolish for us to pass something like that here. And all that it's doing is feeding a partisan rhetoric. It's not leadership. It's not thinking about the long-term future of our state. It's not thinking about making investments in our people so that we hold our place in the world economy. And it's a failure to the people that live in the state. So that's what you're opposed to, and you're opposed to some sort of a bill that would, uh, uh, that would make in-state tuition illegal. What are you for? Tell me something on, on the immigration front that you're for. What would be an affirmative step that you I'm take? for comprehensive immigration reform. Unfortunately, can't. I can't achieve that. But I do, yeah. I do believe this. I do believe that governors of states where immigration issues are at the forefront ought to be leading the way with our congressional partners, with our U.S. Senate partners, and trying to help break the logjam. And we haven't had that here. We've had a governor who's been a part of, of you know, encouraging that logjam, so to speak. And I think that state leaders need to be working with our federal leaders to try to bring a solution to these issues. Let me move over to health care. You are for Medicaid expansion. Absolutely. You believe the state has, has left money on the table in doing so. I asked Senator Van Depute this. The Medicaid system is said to be broken. Why would you buy into a broken system? We are turning away $100 billion of our own tax money to come back to work for us in Texas. And under Greg Abbott's plan, we will send over the next 10 years $100 billion to supplement the health care of people in California and in New York. As I said to him last night, Mr. Abbott is California's best friend in Texas, and they don't need another governor looking out for them. They've already got one. 
We need a governor who's looking out for the people of this state. And we know that that money is very important, not only because of the medical services that would be provided in expanding coverage in our state to so many hardworking people who don't have it, but because of the estimated job impact of bringing that money into our economy. A couple hundred thousand jobs potentially at stake. Yes. Um, you know, the, the economic analyses have predicted as much as 300,000 right. jobs per year. Ray Perryman did that analysis. And let's say he's wrong by half. I mean, when you, when you think about the fact that we just competed for Tesla, we competed very hard for it. Right. It would have brought 6,500 jobs to our state. We should have been competing for it. Yeah. I'm sorry that we didn't get it. But the fact of the matter is we have an opportunity to bring our own tax dollars back to Texas and put them to work for us. And once again, we've got people who are more interested in partisan rhetoric than they are in being leaders and doing the right thing for our state. Uh, Senator, if I do the math on the, on the likely outcome of the elections, I do the math on the likely outcomes of the elections in the legislature, you're going to have a Republican-led House and a Republican-led okay. Senate. You just can't make the math work and, and conclude otherwise. Could you as governor, as a Democratic governor of a, of a state with a legislature whose houses are both Republican, do anything on this issue without their support? Because theoretically, the next legislature, regardless of the outcome of the governor's race, is not going to change its mind on this issue. There's some indication that an executive action actually can achieve this. Oh, those are popular these days. Oh, indeed. Yes. But, you know, sometimes you have to do hard things when they're the right, right things. Um, but I'll say this about working with the legislature. I came up on a city council. I yeah. didn't have a partisan affiliation next to my name, and I don't think through a partisan lens. I really do try to be a common sense thinker. And in my time in the Texas Senate, I've been privileged to work with senators on the Republican side of the aisle that bring that very same approach. Yeah. And I know that we have members on both sides of the aisle, in the House and in the Senate, who understand this problem. Dr. Zerwas is a great example of someone who's been trying to lead the way and help Texas do the right thing in finding the solution to bring those Medicaid dollars to work for us here. And I trust that we can set a working environment together that establishes right. bipartisanship and shows respect. And we haven't had that at the top in a long time in Texas. You mentioned the Tesla deal. Uh, that m makes me want to ask you about the incentive programs that Governor Perry has had in place for some time, controversial to attract business to the state. Uh, Dan Patrick wants to see them completely eliminated. As I understand it, you don't. You want more oversight. You want more That's transparency. Right. But you think that those incentive funds to attract business to the state still have some merit. Absolutely. You know, Greg Abbott has said that the government ought not be in the business of picking winners, winners and, losers. and losers. But we absolutely ought to be in the business of picking winners. And if we use those investments soundly, they do result in job creation and in investment in our state. As a city council person and as the chair of our economic development committee, yeah. I help to lead the way to create literally just under a billion dollars worth of inve investment in my community and yep. thousands and thousands of jobs. And we had a yearly audit of every single one of our public-private partnerships. And if our private partners didn't deliver on the jobs they promised or the investment that they promised, we clawed back our right. public dollars. I'm very proud as a senator that I passed a bill to do the very same thing with the Enterprise Fund to claw back if private yep. promises weren't met. And most importantly, last session in a bipartisan bill, I was able to pass a law that we finally audit the Enterprise Fund for the first time in its 10-year history, not because I don't believe in that fund, but because I want voters to see what it's being used for, and right. I want them to know that we're using it accountably, that we are holding our private partners to their promises, and that we are getting a return on the investment of those public monies. Uh, let me ask about women's health. Uh, the, obviously, the legislation that you filibustered last session was about abortion and about the, the changes to what is uh, available access for women to services on the reproductive health side. Uh, we, that, we're still in court over this case as we, as we sit here, and a number of clinics have closed. Um, 
what's likely to happen next? What, what is, where do you see this issue going? I think, I think many of us are wondering whether the legislature has, has finally done with this issue or whether it's likely to be back again. It seems to come back every time in some fashion. Yes. I mean, who, who knows? Um, when, when the folks who are pushing that agenda will feel like they've achieved their goal. Yeah. And I obviously can't predict what the Fifth Circuit is going to do on this issue. But I do know that what I stood for 13 hours to protest yeah. was with legitimate reason. We've already seen what's happened. 21 of 40, what was, what was of 40 clinics have closed. Right. And, you know, with this second provision, if it is allowed to go into law, the Ambulatory Surgical Center provision, we'll have six or seven clinics left open in Texas. Yeah. And we know that that will compromise women's health, plain and simple. I can't predict whether we will be able to reverse course on this in an upcoming legislature. And looking at the makeup of our legislature right wouldn't, now... wouldn't be too optimistic, would you? I wouldn't be real on, on the other hand, on it, it is likely the case, if not certainly the case, that if the legislature were to take more action on this uh, and people in the audience or somewhere else didn't like it, yeah. ultimately the veto is the only thing that stands between that legislation... That's exactly right. right. So that's, and that is the case you're taking out to people as you travel the state. It, it is, and, and more importantly... I think when, when we saw what happened in the Capitol June 25th last summer, thousands and thousands of people participated, whether they were there in person or whether they were participating on social media. Yep. And I think it was an important lesson for us that when we do involve ourselves, when we do invest our voices in the process, we can make a change. And that if voters believe that these decisions don't reflect their values, the way to show their values is at the ballot box. So, so why don't they? I mean, one way to look at this is the voters have spoken. They've put a set of people in office knowing what those people believed. And they've got the government they asked for. And if people don't vote, then they, on some levels, forfeit their right to complain. Isn't that one theory of the case here? That's part of the theory, and, and it is part of the problem that we have such low voter participation in our state. Right. But the much greater demon here is two decades long of gerrymandering that has worked very effectively to silence people's voices. But of course, while, while lamenting the effects of, of redistricting is in fashion these days, and what you're saying is undeniable, the number of competitive sure. elections you can count on two hands with fingers left over, the fact is, it is what it is. So you can't wire around that in the short term, and you probably can't wire around that in the long term either. Well, actually, you can. How? If you have a Democratic governor sitting at the desk to veto the next redistricting bill that comes that out. Would be, and that's what you would do. I'm sensing a theme to this conversation, actually. <laughs> Let me ask you a, a, a broad question. Is President Obama a millstone around your neck? I don't believe so, no. So if not, why didn't you answer the question last night that General Abbott asked you? He asked you, do you regret your vote for President Obama? I listened. I didn't hear you answer. No, I don't regret it. But that question... Why didn't you say it last night? Because the question, the question was, I thought, in the context of what we were there to talk about last night, we were there to talk about who we're going to be as future leaders of this state. We were there to talk about whether we would invest in our future economy by investing in education. We were there to talk about what we would do in terms of making sure that the future economy of this state is strong through water investment and transportation investment. We were there to talk about our policies on Medicaid expansion right. and immigration. And, you know, of course I don't regret that vote. But the fact of the matter is, that wasn't what we were there to talk about last night. And I thought it was striking yeah. that when he had the one opportunity to ask me a question, instead of asking me something about who I will be as governor, yeah. he asked me about who I voted for as president. But, but, but Senator, isn't that, <laughs> Senator isn't, that, isn't that exactly what he asked you? Didn't he ask you who you'll be as governor by asking that question? What he wants to do well, is telegraph not. to his people, she's basically Wendy Hussein Obama. That's what he, that is what he wants his supporters to believe. He wants to associate you with the president. And the question is, is that a comparison 
that you're willing to embrace. You know what? There are things our president has done that I agree wholeheartedly with. One of them I talked about last night. He is calling on us to increase the minimum wage. Right. And as governor of this state, I will call on this state to do that. There are things he's done that I've disagreed with. Name one. Two. I have a really, a very good one. Go. In my area of yeah. the state, North Texas, both President Obama and Greg Abbott tried to intervene and stop the merger between U.S. Air and American Airlines. Right, and you were outspoken at the time. And do you yeah. understand what that would have done in terms of not only the North Texas economy, but right. the economy of this state? Yes. Neither of them showed an understanding of the economic engine that is American Airlines and what would have happened to our state economy yeah. had we not allowed that merger to go forward. I had one of your supporters ask me today if... if Greg Abbott is going to compare Wendy Davis to Barack Obama. Why doesn't Wendy Davis compare Greg Abbott to Rick Perry? Since the theory this questioner had was that Greg Abbott is effectively running for Rick Perry's fifth term, why not run more against Perry than Abbott? <laughs> well, I'm, run that? I'm running against Greg Abbott. And I think Greg Are there Abbott... Difference? Are there meaningful differences? Greg Abbott has a great record to run against. I'll he does? Just say okay, that. so make yes. the case. This is... This is the portion of our conversation, Senator, where we pivot to you making the case against Greg Abbott. So go ahead and do it. Take a shot. Tell us why you think he should not be governor. I think that he has shown in his long tenure in office, whether as a judge or as attorney general, that time and again he will sell out the interests of the people who elected them to serve them in favor of his insider donors. We saw it with what he did not very long ago on chemicals. He reversed long-standing law in this state and said that families no longer have a right to know whether dangerous chemicals are being stored next to their homes or their schools or where they work. And almost in that exact simultaneous time frame, he received a $100,000 contribution from his friends, the Koch brothers. We've seen it in his rulings for his friends in the payday lending industry. Greg Abbott is the best friend of the payday lending industry. A group of folks that I have stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with for the last six years trying to get reforms put in place. And Greg Abbott is the person, $300,000 of con campaign contributions later, who gave them the green light to operate outside the law and charge unlimited fees to members of our military, teachers and other hardworking Texans in this state. It is ruining families. And meanwhile, attorneys general in other states around this country have been leading the way for consumer reform in the payday lending arena. We saw it not very long ago yeah. when he received a $250,000 contribution from the chair of a hospital board, a hospital who is currently being sued by a number of families because they kept on their staff, even though they'd been notified that this particular doctor was likely abusing cocaine during surgeries, even though they'd been notified by fellow medical professionals that he was operating in a way that they were very concerned about. He was called a sociopath by one of his medical associates. Even though they understood this, this man was allowed to continue his neurosurgery practice for about an 18-month period of time. Two of his patients died. Two of his patients were paralyzed. Others were seriously maimed. And when Greg Abbott took that $250,000 yeah. contribution from the chair of the hospital board, even though he didn't have to intervene in that case as attorney general, he intervened in that case in favor of the hospital and against the victims. He's, I think it yeah. says everything you need to know about who he is. And it goes back to that saying, yeah. my, my friend's grandma is saying, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. He has shown us over and over and over who he is. He's shown us that he is not favorable to the education of our children. And last night when I asked him my direct question about yeah. who he would be as governor, he doubled down and said he will continue to appeal to keep that $5.4 billion in cuts to our public schools. 
Which of these two people has shown you that they truly believe in making an investment in the future economy of this state and its people? I think we both have a record that demonstrates which of us will make that, those that's investments. That's your case. Is, uh, is, I, feel like, I feel like in the last several cycles there were campaigns mounted on the basis of cro- charges of cronyism, which is essentially what you're talking about, that you're taking money from people and then you're you're doing things for them or not doing things to them as a consequence of it. Public didn't really seem to bite on that as a particularly resonant issue. Why do you think it'll be different this time? What's unique about this, Evan, is we're not talking typical political cronyism where people take campaign contributions and they offer a little help to their donors here and there in the legislative process. We're talking about someone who's taking contributions from donors and then acting in a way that is harming the people of this state. That's the real distinction. And that's act, why I think act, that people actor. will sit up and take notice. So yes. earlier this, uh, this week, uh, my colleague Ross Ramsey, who you know, said, uh, we were talking about whether the, you know, is, how does the Abbott campaign view this race? Mm-hmm. And, and Ross said to me, you'll know that the Abbott campaign considers this to be a real race when they start running negative ads. Mm-hmm. Well, this week we got our first negative ad. Yes, didn't we did. We? And I want to ask you about it. Um, you question the ethics of some of the things he's done. He questions the ethics of some of the things you've done. The Abbott campaign put out really two ads this week. One was an ad, one was a web video, I believe. Questioning your ethics, and I want to ask you about them. I don't want to wait for PolitiFact to tell me whether they're true. I want you to tell me if they're true. (laughs) One alleged that you didn't always recuse yourself from work on the Fort Worth City Council when the city was considering projects that affected your business interests. They cited a specific instance that you voted for more than $21 million in tax breaks for hotel developers who used your title insurance company in the sale of a building. Is that true or false? I have voted for so many economic development deals as the chair of the Economic Development Committee in my city. And in every single one of them, regardless of who was getting the title work, my number one focus was are we going to get investment in our community and are we going to grow jobs in our community? And for every single one of them, there was a yearly audit conducted and a clawback if their promises weren't held. My number one focus has always been acting on behalf of the best interests of the people who elected me to serve them. And I would be Uh, I would challenge anyone to show that I voted in a way that was ever against the interests of the people who elected me. Let's stipulate all that. Can you say for certainty that none of those votes that you cast ultimately reverberated in a positive way financially back to you or your business interests? Absolutely, I can say that because there was never, ever any kind of a quid pro quo in the work that I did. And in fact, I was very careful to follow every ethical guideline for the city of Fort Worth and worked very closely with the city attorney to assure that I did. And in fact, that very article that Greg Abbott tried to get planted in the Dallas Morning News makes that point. Let me ask you about the second ad. The second ad says that as a state senator, you used influence to win lucrative taxpayer-funded contracts and then voted on bills that helped your own law firm. And they claim that your legal work is part of an open FBI investigation. True or false? Absolutely false. And every, Greg, every part of it is Greg false. Greg Abbott knows that's absolutely false. Right. And I'm very disappointed that he would be willing to put something forward that he knows to be a lie. They've called for you to. Um, they've called for you to release a full list of your clients. You've released, as I understand it, a list of your public clients. I have. You've not re- released a list of your private clients. That's right. Why not? I've done more than any uh, elected official that I know of has done in terms of releasing my public list of clients. We aren't required to do that. And you probably know that last session, I actually was the Senate sponsor of a bill that would have done that, to shine that light of transparency on any public entity that might have business before the Texas legislature and whether we were representing them and in what capacity we might be representing them. Private clients, whether they're my clients or clients of other attorneys, expect and should be given attorney-client privilege. What I have said, and it's absolutely true, I do not represent any private clients that have business before the Texas legislature, and my clients deserve the same right right to attorney-client privilege that any other client. But of course your critics would say, Senator, that you're, you're asking us to take your word for it, and that if you want to make this problem go away, just release the list. It's not my privilege. It's my client's privilege. It's your client's privilege. 
Did you not say uh, some time ago that you would put your business on hold if you ran for governor? I did. You haven't? Well, I pretty much have now. I had to wind some things down, but some practicalities required that I continue to, to work on some of the active cases that I had going on. Whether it's legal or not, do you think as a matter of principle that lawmakers should refrain from making money off of clients that do business with the state and have interests before the legislature? If they aren't acting in conflict with their role, no. We have our standards written in terms of what we are allowed to vote on and what we aren't allowed to vote on. Are we receiving some unique compensatory um, benefit by virtue of something that we're voting on? Yep. If the answer to that question is yes, then no, we ought not to. Okay. We're going to go to questions in a second. Let me encourage people to line up because I know we'll have a bunch. Let me ask you one more question before we do. On the subject of ethics, the Abbott campaign has filed an ethics complaint over your book, as you yes. know, the book that just came out, Forgetting to Be Afraid. Uh, I don't want to ask you so much about that because that will be resolved by another body, whether it's a legitimate complaint or a, or a frivolous complaint. But the timing of the book has come up. Mm -hmm. Why would you do this and have the book come out now? And the revelations about your terminated pregnancies in the book, the timing of those revelations have also come up as an issue. Can you explain the timing of the book and the, and the decision to make those revelations public now as opposed to at some previous point? This book is a very personal book. Yeah. It's not a political book. Yeah. And when I agreed to write it, uh, when I was contacted by a publisher last fall, I agreed to write a very public book. Right. I released the book when I completed the book. It's all about that. It is. Yeah. Um, and I released it and am proud to show people how I came to be who I am, why it is that I'm fighting for the things that I'm fighting for. But I released it to share a very personal story. And I hoped that for people who read it, it will offer some help, perhaps women and their families who are going through some of the same difficult decisions that my former husband and I confronted with our two pregnancies, right. um, or perhaps a young person who's struggling, maybe a struggling single mom like I once was, who might read in my story something that inspires them to believe that if they can get their foot on the path of education, they too can see their dreams realized. I wanted to share my personal story for personal reasons. And, and so to those ones. who say by bringing this up now, you're uh, drawing attention to an, a global issue, not your personal issue, but a global issue that has a double edge politically for you, your response is what? I didn't think about it from a political lens. Not a political issue for you? No. Okay. Let's take questions. I'll try to take as many as time permits. Tanya, you'll let me know. Senator, thank you for your kind, uh, kindness of participating today. Thank I appreciate you. Thank you. Um, there, there, back forth, back forth for as long as we can make it work. Please, questions, no speeches, and let's show one another basic respect. Sir. Hi, um, I, my name is David, and I am. I want to talk about the uh, global pre-K program. You stated that it would cost about $700 million, but the director of the National Institute for Early Education Research said that a conservative estimate for that program alone is only is $2 billion. So where did you get the number $700 million? You're saying $2 billion is national or for Texas? Two, $2 billion is the estimate for this, for this particular part of her education proposal from the director of the Institute for, National, for Early Education Research, the National Institute. So I guess, where did you get the so, number? I, I explained my number. My number is on a sliding scale. For students who are in the free and reduced uh, lunch program, it would be offered to them for free. For students whose families have higher incomes than that, they would pay on a sliding scale. That's why the cost That's is the as it is. That's the basis for the calculation. Yes. Okay. Ma'am. Yes. Um, in response to Evan's question about what would you do as governor if there's a Republican House and Senate mm -hmm. to overcome, um, I guess the word might have been the gridlock there, mm -hmm. to push your agenda, you said you'd use executive order. You then uh, later said that you want to see minimum wage in Texas increase. So if the House and Senate don't pass a minimum wage bill, will you use executive order to have that go through in whatever capacity? I think you're, you're mischaracterizing the answer that I gave to Evan's question. He was asking me particularly about Medicaid expansion. Right. But it's not my intention at all to become a governor who believes she is a monarch of the state of Texas. I was going to bring I a, the, with the a connection of President Obama doing the same thing. Way. 
and I will work in a way that I believe is productive, proactive, and makes an investment in our children's education and in the future economy of this state. So you As will fact, use you, you executive may not order? You even be able to wave a scepter over the state and say the no, minimum wage is now I, what I say it is. I right? don't believe that I will. Power. Ma'am. Uh, Everyone knows that you're an advocate for equal pay for women, uh, and we hear this often repeated statistic of 77 cents, um, which is actually typically for uh, like white women. So what would you do to ensure that this benefit of equal pay would extend to women of color, like Hispanics and African-American women? Is, is there a racial or ethnic aspect to equal pay that the, would the need to be addressed independently of just the gender issue? Well, I mean, the, the fact is that if we do have a state law that provides that equal pay protection, it can be used by any person who might be impacted unfairly by what they're being paid. But your point is well made, that in the minority community, the differential of wages is even higher than that 70 cent number that you hear to a dollar that a man makes. And you may know that in the last legislative session, speaking of working in a bipartisan way, um, I was very proud to get a bill out of the Texas Senate, a fair pay bill. My uh, compatriot in the House, Symphonia Thompson, got it out of a majority Republican House, and we proudly delivered that bill to uh, Governor Perry's desk, and of course he vetoed it, and Greg Abbott has said that he will veto it as well. I believe this legislature has the capacity and hopefully the desire yeah. to pass that bill once again. I would put my money on Symphronia Thompson any day. But, but, but and the, if they do, I will, I will sign it very proudly as a but, state. But again, staff. having the power... Senator, having the power of the veto pen is one thing. The fact is, if the composition of the legislature is roughly what it is now, next time, and they yeah. don't pass the bill, hands are tied. Indeed. Hands are tied. So, uh, Senator, elections we're, matter. How we manage the fracking boom is perhaps the number one issue for our political leadership over the coming years. There's increasing scientific skepticism and doubt about the very optimistic projections for the revenues and how long the boom is going to be last uh, is going to last. Uh, and so, how can we manage not to get stuck with the bag? The question is this: What if? we applied the same skepticism that the oil and gas companies apply to climate change to these predictions they offer about the oil production and gas. What do you think about the likely longevity of the oil and gas bill? You know, I'm listening to what the Legislative Budget Board and others at the state level are telling us about the predicted term of this boom. Um, clearly, it has created a job stimulus impact in our state that was very, very needed. And clearly, it has created an opportunity for us to gain revenues in the state that were very, very needed. These are some of the same revenues that we'll be looking at to help solve water, transportation, and right. education problems going forward in the future. I have a long history, um, again, going back to my city council days, of working in a balanced approach with industry to make sure that we allow the development of these minerals, that we allow the investments and the job creation that came from fracking in my own hometown, the Barnett Shale and Tarrant County, while balancing that against health and safety and quality of life issues. And we did a great job in our city in coming up with an ordinance that has been used by a model, as a model, by other cities, I believe we can do the same thing as a state. It takes someone pulling all of these interests together at the table and making sure that that balance is ultimately reflected in what we do. Sir. Um, yes, I have a friend from Pennsylvania named Antoinette Fisher, and she would like to say hi, hi and also would like to inform you that you're not only popular in Texas, you're popular all across this country. And so to that effect, I'd like to ask you, have you thought about your long-term political future? And <laughs> I, I think how long do we get to keep you as a I, governor? I think he wants to know if this Texas thing doesn't work out. Yeah, would you right. consider running for governor of Pennsylvania? <laughs> No, no, no. My, my roots are embedded here in Texas. You're stuck with us. We're stuck I've, I've with got you. my That's plate it. full worrying about this race yeah. right now. Sir. Thank you for the Thank question. Thank you. I'm a Republican because I view the fiscal irresponsibility of the White House as a terrible tragedy. In the, in the, in, during the Obama administration, the debt has increased by $7 trillion. Question, please. California, I'm going to get to that. Question. No, no, no. Get to it now. 
California has one of the highest poverty levels in this state. Toyota has moved from California to Texas. Why do you want to bring fiscal irresponsibility to Texas? Why do you want to California my Texas, our Texas? Do you want to California his Texas? That's the question. Please, please show respect. Everybody show respect. Ask a question. Don't ask, don't make a speech. I'm happy to answer that question because I have put a plan forward that is forward thinking, that is a plan that will invest in the future economy of this state. And anyone who doesn't make these investments is being fiscally foolish. Again, going back to the example, in the next 10 years of saying no to $100 billion of our tax money and sending it to California, that's Californiaing our Texas, not what I plan to do. I want to be clear. I want to get to as many questions as possible, which means please respect the fact that there are people behind you on both sides. Sir. Um, As a community college professor, I want to thank you for your comments earlier on community colleges and the important role they play. Thank you. Thank you. My question is on gerrymandering. You talked about how toxic that is. I was wondering that if, as governor, you'd be willing to support the type of independent redistricting commission to address gerrymandering that we have just implemented, I think, successfully here in Austin. Do you think independent redistricting is possible? You know, I I watched my dear colleague, Senator Jeff Wentworth, try to pass that bill repeatedly, and I supported it, and I would sign that as governor were it to hit my desk. Um, But whether it's possible to get it through this legislature is a whole entire But you think it would be a good idea? Again, if you could wave your scepter, you think this would be a good idea? I'm glad you would try. Okay. Hi. Last night in the debate, you talked about how you support drug testing for welfare recipients if they go to rehab, they can still retain their benefits. But my quick question is, why do you support a program that is costly and ineffective and further stigmatizes the vulnerable populations of Texas? I think it's legitimate for us to ask whether our tax dollars are going to people who have problems that are helping to impede them from being a productive part of our workforce. That's not always the case, of course, in in these issues. But this was a proposal advanced in the last legislative session, and because I believe in working in a balanced way, I worked to make some very important changes in that bill. Number one, a process, a due process procedure that would be put in place to assure that we aren't dealing with false positives and having people losing their ability to receive benefits as a consequence of that. But number two, I think the very important social goal of if we have the opportunity to determine that someone is drug dependent and if we have the capacity to help that person move from that place to a place of a a healthier state of being, as a state I think we have an interest in trying to help make that happen. And these were important changes that I made in that bill and I was proud to have have done that. Hi, my name is Forrest. Um, Senator Davis, um, as you know, in a two-party system, one candidate does have to lose. Um, If you do lose, and this is a nonpartisan if, um, if you do lose, have you thought about any other offices you might seek later on in the future, possibly uh, Ted Cruz's 2018 Senate re-election seat? (laughs) You know, Forrest, the reason that I am where I am today is because I am an eternal optimist. And I will tell you with great optimism that I'm not going to lose this election. Okay, thank you. Sir, uh, you've stated your support of the death penalty, but considering death, death penalty? the death penalty, yes. yes, and considering that the form of lethal injection is becoming a difficult, if not excruciating, form of that uh, form of justice, what forms of the death penalty would you support? And are you certain that your office will never put an innocent person to death? Under that form. Now it's a two-part question. One is method of execution. Second is the question of innocence. What do you do about that? In in terms of method, obviously the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution prevails there, and I respect that and do believe that there's some legitimate questions being asked about what this cocktail is and that there ought to be transparency with regard to 
what these drugs are. Of course, Greg Abbott had been ruling in that same way. I think he'd ruled three or four yep. different times that that transparency ought to be there. But once again, coincidentally, with a campaign contribution, he reversed course on that and said that no longer do we have the right to, to know that. What was the second part of Se your question? The second question was, how can you be sure that we're not putting innocent people to death? Or as governor, how could you be sure that you're not putting innocent yes. people to death? Obviously, you know, what we've been able to do in the DNA evidence arena is a tremendously important part of this. And as I've said previously, though I do support the death penalty and will be capable of carrying it out as governor, I will do everything I can to assure that we aren't ever meeting out that most ultimate of penalties to someone who is innocent. I've been a leader in making sure that we test DNA evidence available to us. I was very proud in the last two legislative sessions, first to pass an audit of untested rape kits in our state. It turns out we had over 18,000 sitting on evidence room shelves in Texas. And in the following session, again in a bipartisan way, receiving the funding to begin the testing of that backlog. And it works for two purposes. Number one, it brings closure to a victim. But number two, it assures that we do not have an innocent person sitting in jail for a crime that they didn't commit. And as governor, I will continue to support efforts to assure that both of those goals are met. Thank you. Thank you. Former, um, former Secretary of State, I'm sorry, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Kathleen Sebelius, had talked about 10 years of federal funding for an ex expansion of Medicaid. Yep. Given the state's 1% clause um, regarding welfare in the Constitution, given the 1% clause that we will not fund needy children and their caretakers, can we, practically speaking, really expand Medicaid in Texas without completely revamping that state constitution, which has ideas from 1876 in it? We absolutely have the capacity to provide for working people who fall in that Medicaid gap to receive that coverage. And as I said, our uh, state representative and doctor, Representative Dr. Zerwas has been a real leader in helping to advance a plan that would make sense for Texas, that would fit constitutionally for Texas, and would provide our ability to bring that money here and put it to work for us. And I'll work with him to try to make that happen. Thank you. You mentioned him one more time. He's going to have a primary I know, before we poor, leave the building. Poor Dr. Zerwas. Uh, we're going to only have time for the last two, and that's it. We're about five minutes out, sir, right. and then over here. Sir. Um, Senator Davis, over the course of this campaign, you have been very critical of cronyism and insider dealing in Texas government. While you didn't take the bait today, you have in the past also been very critical of Governor Rick Perry's role as one player in the cronyism and insider dealing. My question, question is... If cronyism is such a, as big a deal as you say it is, and if Rick Perry is as bad a factor in it as you say that he is, why did you found a law firm with Rick Perry's former chief of staff, Brian Newby? Do you agree with the premise that Rick Perry has been a problem in the, from the standpoint of cronyism? Well, I, I passed that audit of the Enterprise Fund, right. particularly so that we can see transparently whether that has been a problem. Right. But my law partner is no more the double twin to Rick Perry than I am to any other person. He's a fine, upstanding human being. And again, because I believe in working in a bipartisan way, I'm very proud to work with a law partner who once served in a Republican administration in this state. He is a general in the National Air Guard. He is one of the finest human beings I have ever met in my life, and I'm proud to call him my law partner. Last question. <laughs> Sir. So first, can I just start by saying, what an amazing day. Round of applause to Texas Tribune Festival and Evan Thank Smith you. for moderating. Well, that's right. Very good. Um, Hashtag ad, as they say. Keep going. Let's go. So, Question. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the American dream. Ted Cruz just kept on going on and on about it. And, and to me, it's very, very hard to believe in the American dream whenever there's gutting of education spending. And so in Colorado, we've seen that Question, there is... Uh, that there is money being taken from the uh, taxes of medicinal marijuana as well as recreational marijuana. Mm -hmm. So if you were governor, 
would you support legalizing marijuana or just starting to look into it? I don't know what the right answer is, yeah. but I just got back from Washington and people yeah. seemed pretty he, cool. He buried the... <laughs> He buried you know the punchline, didn't he? He buried the lead, didn't he, actually? I thought he was going to zig and he zagged. Um, all right, uh, legalizing marijuana, or I, don't, I guess he's going past decriminalization to just outright legalization. Yeah, I mean, right? I'll start with decriminalization. Any place of, you of want. small That's amounts of, of yeah, marijuana, right. which, of course, we heard Governor Perry actually uh, get behind not very long ago. I think that's important because law enforcement ought to be working on more serious issues than that. Okay. Um, but in terms of the second piece of that, I believe the voters of Texas will ultimately make a determination whether they feel that that's right for our state. And we'll look at the example of Colorado and others to determine whether it's something that we feel is important for, for us to proceed with. But I do think it needs to be voter-initiated, right. referendum-initiated. And as governor, I'd certainly support putting that to the voters to let them decide. Senator, you're making a regular thing of this Tribune Festival thing. <laughs> Maybe, depending upon what happens in November, you'll come back again next year. I certainly hope All I All right, I look forward to it. Senator Thank Wendy Davis, thanks very much. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Senator.